Good afternoon, and welcome to the Middle East Forums webinar and podcast series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this session. Please to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forums Israel office, join us here each Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Place a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located question. And now I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening from Israel. Uh, this week, we're going to change tack a little bit, and we're going to talk about something which, uh, on the face of it, doesn't seem very interesting or even terribly consequential, but is actually uh, extremely important in Israeli po uh, politics, and that is the budget. Uh, we've spoken quite a lot about the budget over the last couple of years. First of all, Israel. Uh, has not passed a state budget for over three years. Uh, I think it was March 2018, the last time Israel had a state budget. What that means is up until this moment, or at least until the budget is passed, probably at the end of October or early November, uh, means for three and a half years, Israel has been running on an outdated budget. And basically, whatever was written in that budget uh, three and a half years ago, still stands pretty much uh, across the gamut of ministries and uh, arenas and areas uh, in Israel. We know why, because Israel's been a pretty much political stalemate. We had election after election, uh, but now hopefully for the first time, we may actually have a state budget in three and a half years. That's one of the reasons why it's important, but also it's important on another couple of issues. First of all, uh, second of all, let's say, uh, we know that uh, by, uh, by all accounts from the last government, uh, it fell because it was not able to pass a budget. Uh, there's really one built-in way that a government uh, can fall uh, by itself, uh, and that's if it is unable to pass a budget within the first 60 days or 90 days. Uh, this particular government extended a little bit, but if a budget isn't passed within a certain amount of time, uh, the government falls automatically and we go for snap elections. Uh, at the moment, as I said, uh, the budget has to be passed by, I believe, November 4th, or if it's not passed that day, then uh, we go for snap elections. That's it. That's the end of this government, regardless of anything else. So that's why it's important. We saw that in the last government, uh, the Netanyahu-Gantz government, that was one of the so-called outs that uh, uh, former Prime Minister Netanyahu had, uh, to try and uh, basically get out of the government and go to elections where he felt he would have a stronger hand and be able to build a government without the need of Gantz and basically what he called a full right-wing government. Uh, we now know exactly what happened. Uh, that didn't work out well for him, but uh, he used that out. We have a relatively similar situation that we have, uh, again, in this government, we have a prime minister, an alternate prime minister, uh, so far, it's working relatively well, especially between those two. Uh, they're supposed to uh, switch positions after two years, and there's certainly not the animosity and the mistrust that there was between uh, Gantz and Netanyahu. So there's a certain feeling that if we can pass this budget, then this government could last at least two years. Uh, so that's another reason it's important. The third reason it's important is because in Israel, I'm not sure... Uh, not too familiar with too many other systems around the world, but in Israel, a budget comes in two parts. There's the first, what we automatically think of a budget, which is, which is the dry numbers, income and expenditure, literally like uh, you know a sheet that you would see in an accounting firm, how much money is expected to come in, or uh, it will come in from 
on uh, expected ex expenditure uh, uh, income and what it's going to be spent on. Uh, obviously, it's not always balanced. That's the way of uh, nation states. Uh, but it's basically just a dry uh, you know, sort of uh, spreadsheet. Obviously, we're talking about billions of uh, dollars or billions of shekels, but that's the sort of dry part. The more interesting part is what's called the arrangements law. As I said, the budget is split up into two parts. The second part, the arrangements law, is interesting because it gives the uh, ideas behind the numbers. What do I mean by that? It's basically uh, explaining how it's going to arrive at these numbers, both coming in and going out, raising taxes, raising VAT, uh, lowering uh, this, lowering that, uh, how they're going to basically raise the money, what's going to be spent on in defense, in, in, in all different areas, in education, in health. Uh, so it, it's, it's interesting in so much that this government is interesting, and, I, and I'll explain what I mean by that. For the last 12 years, to a large extent, again, I'm oversimplifying, uh, the government, I, I've used this term many occasions, Israel is a parliamentary system. Uh, we have a government where the prime minister is supposed to be first amongst equals, uh, which means that uh, a prime minister, he or she, uh, has one vote in the cabinet, just as the same as everyone else in the cabinet. And the cabinet is supposed to have a majority uh, to decide any decisions at the executive level. We moved to a situation over the last 12 years where Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, moved it up a notch to what I would call a quasi-presidential system where he had uh, much greater powers, let's say, than the law dictates. Uh, and he basically uh, decided almost everything that happened on a high level in Israel, whether it's defense, whether it's foreign affairs, whether it's economic affairs. And uh, for many, uh, for much of the tenure uh, of Prime Minister Netanyahu, he ensured that certain ministries were either not populated at all, we didn't have a foreign minister for many years, or were populated by yes or weaker figures. Uh, we saw that in the finance minister, uh, finance ministry, to a certain extent in defense ministry, there were powerful figures, but certainly he ensured, Netanyahu ensured that he got the, the, the final decision on many things. So what we saw to a certain extent was stagnation in uh, major policy areas. I, I've spoken many times before that uh, uh, former Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu was very much a risk-averse politician. He didn't like to take big steps, not in military affairs, not in diplomatic affairs. Obviously, we saw uh, that there were some great achievements, but I'm saying on the whole, when there was a risk involved, uh, on many occasions, there was a decision just not to even do it. What we're seeing now is we're seeing something very different. We're seeing a return to a parliamentary democracy where ministers are really in charge of their ministry. They really have come in because uh, there's a weaker prime minister uh, and every party is absolutely essential for this government to survive. There's no one strong party and every minister has a certain amount of autonomy, let's just say a larger amount of autonomy over their particular ministry. So what we've seen in the last... Uh, six weeks or whatever it is, it was, we've seen really uh, some major reforms, uh, or let's say attempted reforms, because nothing's passed at the moment. We've seen an agricultural ministry, an attempt to reform the system where we can import uh, certain fruits and vegetables, uh, creating greater markets, creating greater competition, and hopefully lowering prices. We've seen, uh, we saw past uh, recently, this whole kashrut uh, uh, reform, where basically more than just the centralized uh, monopoly of the state rabbinate can give uh, kashrut licenses so they basically can charge what they want so now 
they've broken that monopoly. Again, this has to be put in, this is put into the arrangements law. It uh, hasn't passed yet. That basically you can have uh, other private organizations which will be able to give kashrut. They have to meet certain standards. They have to be given by municipal rabbis, which at the end uh, are still appointed by the state rabbinate, but still it definitely creates greater competition. And this again is hoped will lower prices. We see uh, many other reforms pretty much uh, across uh, the, the gamut of ministries here. Each minister is really trying to get an achievement. He's really trying to come in with fresh ideas, which is saying, okay, this ministry to their mind at least may have stagnated for the last 12 years. Now let's really speak to the professionals uh, and, and uh, you know, speaking to Minister uh, Finance Minister uh, Abidur Lehman recently, you know, he, he's very interested to hear ideas uh, by professionals, which simply any idea that they brought out with a great reform has basically been pushed aside, partly because, as I said, of this risk aversion, but also because there are some very strong lobbies uh, in Israel, and three of them are really going to be facing off uh, against as I said, the arrangements law, which is a major part of the budget. Uh, one of those is the agricultural sector, the farmers union, which are very angry about this reform, as you can imagine, to open up the market, to allow uh, greater competition, to allow uh, greater imports uh, is something which they won't be happy about. And that's something that's not just part of the Netanyahu era, that's been a longstanding policy for decades of uh, uh, Israeli history. The second is the ports. Uh, one thing that they're trying to do as well, this government, is at the moment, every item that comes in, regardless of what certifications, uh, safety certificate, if it's a, a, you know, a child's car seat or whatever it is, if it has a stamp of approval from a European or American or you know, a, a, you know, a modern Western country, they still have to pay for an Israeli one. And it has to go through certain safety checks. You can imagine certain products sit in the port for months. Uh, the costs are raised because obviously you have to pay these people. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to basically say any uh, item that comes into Israel that has already met uh, EU and US standards uh, doesn't have to go through another test. Uh, that's pretty standard practice, by the way, from uh, America. Uh, that's pretty standard for the EU. And now Israel hopefully is also going to be doing it. So that's really in there as well. Another thing, defense budget, uh, uh, Minister Lieberman, Defence Minister Gantz and Prime Minister uh, Bennett sat down and really uh, thrashed out uh, the details for the defence budget. The defence budget is always a tricky issue. Whether you raise it, you lower it, where you do it, what are the threats that Israel is facing? Uh, so that was that's also going to be in there. Basically, it is, it's been described, this arrangements law, part of the budget, has been described as one of the most complex in Israel's history. It's 400 pages long. And what that means is every article has to be voted on. That's going to take a lot of time. That process is going to start on Sunday where the, uh, the first draft of the arrangements bill will, will, will appear before the weekly meeting of the ministerial committee on legislation. It has to pass through there to uh, even move on to the next stage. Now, where we're going to see some fights is definitely over ideology. What I mean by ideology is not necessarily on diplomatic or security issues, but on economic issues. You have very different worldviews. You have, let's say, on one side, the right-wing economic worldviews, to a certain extent, of Lieberman, of Lapid, of Bennett, of Saab. And on the other hand, you've got Mirov Michaeli, uh, Nitzan Horowitz, who are definitely more on the left side uh, of the spectrum. For example, those latter two uh, have uh, basically, to a certain extent, 
been lobbied by the agricultural lobby and they said they will not vote for any uh, agricultural reform that's going to be in the arrangements bill. That could certainly uh, cause a problem. But at the end of the day, that's, uh, the question that, that you know, it, it was the topic for, for tonight's webinar is, what are the chances that the opposition will prevent uh, the budget from passing? It's a long process and they've got to get it done by November 4th. You could say, well, that's quite a long time, but the, uh, the Israeli Knesset is going to go in recess in less than two weeks. And it's pretty much not going to come back until October. We have all the Jewish holidays in September. So that's kind of, you know, not going to happen during then. So the time is relatively limited. With goodwill uh, and let's just say a perfect voting record, they can pass it through. Will there be a perfect uh, voting record? That remains to be seen. The government this week has had largely success. Today, it had a failure trying to pass the decriminalization of cannabis law. They thought they had the numbers and the opposition fooled them and came in greater numbers and basically uh, ensured that that uh, bill for the second time wasn't passed. Another thing that we've seen over the last few weeks that we'll definitely see uh, with the budget is the concept of filibusters. I mean, the Knesset members have been, you know, uh, holding sessions until seven or eight in the morning, largely because of filibusters. I mean, it's, it, it'd be almost amusing that you hear people get up and read out poems. They're reading out Talmudic disputes. They're reading the weather, anything to basically ensure that uh, to create as much, uh, you know, length in time between votes to make sure that you, you keep the uh, uh, coalition on the back foot. And we've seen mistakes made as a result of this. And we've seen that some things the coalition has not been able to pass. That could definitely lead to the opposition led by Prime Minister Netanyahu to be relatively optimistic, uh, to be able to delay, to be able to at least peel some opposition within the coalition to play games, to play politics. Uh, I would say at the moment that the, the chances are, I, I think that the government is past to a certain extent its teething issues. It understands what needs to be done, not to say every on every issue, on every law, it's uh, in, in, in step with each other. But this is the big one. If the budget doesn't pass, everyone goes back to elections and the likelihood of being able to form such a government again, let's just say it's probably not the most likely. So every single party in this, uh, uh, in this coalition needs an achievement. Where it's going to have an achievement is in the budget. Obviously we see Ram, the Islamist party, needs to do something for the Arab sector. We see merits, which is teetering on the brink according to all uh, all polls of, of the, uh, uh, you know, to perhaps not even get into the next Knesset, needs to have some achievements to, tell, uh, to show to their voters. So I think that everyone, when it, there'll be a lot of posturing, a lot of posturing, a lot of opposition, a lot of back and forth. But I believe at the end of the day, there'll be a certain amount of compromise. Not every party, in fact, no party will get exactly what they want, but every party will have to make compromises every party will be able to walk out of the uh, budget with a significant achievement. And that should, to a certain extent, give a certain amount of stability to this government. It will change the arena, the political arena. It will change the atmosphere because that's taken a major obstacle for uh, the, the length of this coalition off the table. And I think then we could maybe even see some other uh, parties or part of parties joining the coalition. Uh, a lot of people are talking about that because they understand that 
we're looking at at least two years outside of government and, and all that that means with budgets and with issues. Um, so really, this is the battleground. Everything else is just a starter, it's a first course. The battleground at the moment for everybody, coalition and opposition, is the budget because that's the big issue. That's the big one that they need to pass. If not, everyone goes home and we go to another round of elections. So with that, I'm happy. Sorry, it's quite a difficult uh, issue, but it is an important one because it really is central to where Israeli politics is at the moment and where we're going to see it over the next few months and even uh, the, the years after that. So happy to answer any questions, clarify anything I've said or any other issues you want to raise. Terribly sorry, my internet was uh, cutting out there. Uh, the first question we have is, uh, when will we see religious reform passed, asked by Eric Selkov? Well, as I said, um, there's at least, there was a law passed, uh, obviously yesterday, about um, uh, creating a greater uh, list of those uh, who will uh, vote for Dianim. Dianim, obviously, uh, religious uh, judges, which deal with all sorts of issues relating to divorce, relating to conversion, et cetera, et cetera. At the, uh, up until now, it's been a relatively narrow list uh, representing largely the, uh, the ultra-Orthodox sector. Uh, but now there was a, a, there was a law passed, uh, pushed by Religious Affairs Minister Matan Kahana, which uh, extends uh, the committee uh, into, uh, there'll be more women representative, there'll be more uh, national religious groups, maybe even some more liberal groups uh, to that, who will be on that selection committee. So it's hoped that uh, it won't be so monolithic as it's been up until now. The other thing about Kashrut, as I've explained, uh, that's that there's going to be also reform on that. So, you know, there, there, a lot of, there were a lot of promises made, especially by those parties which wanted to bring in greater religious reform. They're not going to get everything they wanted, but there certainly is a significant change on the horizon. But again, some of these issues are going to be put into the arrangements law and they're going to be voted on. Uh, and the government uh, certainly hopes that they'll be able to have some achievements, at least uh, in the first budget, uh, on religion and state issues. But as Finance Minister Victor Liebman has said of Yisrael Bettina, which is a relatively secular party, has said we won't be able to get everything into the first budget. Maybe it'll have to be put off uh, till two years down the track. Understood, thank you. Uh, how are settlements in the West Bank funded? Are there any economic incentives? And if so, do you foresee a parliamentary battle over this issue? Um, there used to be incentives many, many years ago. The average, let's just say the larger settlements, uh, there are no particular incentives. Uh, there are some smaller ones which are, in Israel it goes by economic level. So it doesn't matter which side of the green line you're on. If, you're, if your town is, uh, meets the standards of a lower economic level, then uh, you will have certain benefits, but that is not necessarily which side of the green line you're on. There are certain, growing and large cities, which are ultra-Orthodox majority, if not completely ultra-Orthodox, which obviously meet those standards because you have less people working, uh, then they get a lot of benefits. In fact, one could argue that it, the laws are even written in that way to favor uh, ultra-Orthodox communities. But again, it doesn't matter which side of the fence uh, of the green line uh, that they're on. So today there are very few, if any, economic uh, benefits specifically for Israelis who live at the Green Line. 
Thank you. And another question. Could you please comment on the report that the Prime Minister will not enforce the court-ordered eviction of squatters in Sheikh Jarrah? Sheikh Jarrah. I mean, that's just a report. Um, I'm sure it's something he doesn't need. Uh, it could uh, mean that the violence will flare up if, first of all, the court hasn't ruled. Uh, that should be stated at, uh, at this point. The, the court hasn't ruled uh, whether they will uh, evict uh, the Arab families who've been living there for a few generations, but do not own the property and, in fact, have admitted and signed a document that they don't own the property. And this is what was at the heart uh, of the last conflict. Um, so I think it's something that no government would want to get into that situation. It could be that they'll reach another compromise where they'll start paying rent, which they promised last time, and, and agree to recognize who the actual owners of the property are. It's very hard to say what the reaction will be because the court has not ruled yet, and we're just talking about reports. Uh, but certainly, as a you know, from the outside, it's certainly something the Prime Minister Naftali Bennett would certainly uh, not want to see because it's become such a flashpoint, and the international community is watching every single step here. Uh, so I can imagine it's it's something he doesn't necessarily need on his plate. Thank you. From Len Levin, with all the numerous parties, big and small, demanding funding, what effect does this have on tax bills for the average Israeli? Well, Finance Minister Vitor Lehman said at the offset he's not raising taxes. Um, he's looking for other ways uh, to raise the funds necessary. Uh, but taxes at this point, uh, there was, uh, at one point, there was a municipal tax raise uh, but apparently that hasn't made its way into the, uh, the first draft. That was something that Victor Liebman tried to explain that that wasn't a direct tax, that was more on the municipal level. Some people didn't buy that. Uh, so it now seems that that argument has worked and that, argument, uh, and that particular uh, uh, raise in municipal taxes hasn't made its way into the original bill. So at this point in time, to the, I haven't read this 400 uh, page document. I don't know many people who have. Um, but as far as I'm aware, there are no uh, specific uh, tax raises at this point. But again, it should be stated, this is a draft. There's a, a lot of back and forth. And the, the first draft is sometimes not even close to what the last draft will be. Yeah, understood. Thank you. From Robert Larrick, isn't country over party and power important all over the place? And don't we all need better human relations? I didn't get the first part. Oh, isn't country over party in power, I guess, because uh, the opposition is trying to shoot down the budget in order to ah, flounder the government? Um, unfortunately, that's not the way politics works, and especially not this opposition. This opposition has said it will do everything uh, necessary to get into power. For example, today it voted down uh, the bill to decriminalize cannabis, even though it was in the Likud's manifesto. Actually, they don't have a manifesto, but they promised to do it. Uh, there's been many other issues uh, where Likud and pretty much the whole opposition would vote for normally, but they've said we will not vote regardless of the issue with the government. We see uh, as a greater strategic good to get rid of the government regardless of uh, this or that issue is important to us. We believe that this is, a, this is what the uh, opposition say. We believe this is a dangerous government and we want to get rid of it as soon as possible. So we will not, we will take every step to weaken it, uh, even if it's symbolic or whatever it is. So uh, that's certainly not the way politics works in general. And what we're seeing now is an extreme version. And by the way, the coalition, likewise, the coalition is voting against 
some of the things that the opposition uh, brought up. I think this week was the first time since this Knesset, which is uh, uh, almost two months old, was the first time an opposition bill was supported by the government. Uh, I can't remember exactly what the bill was. It wasn't a, necessarily a major ideological issue. I do know Karen Barak of Likud brought it up and the government committee uh, basically passed it on and they're going to uh, vote for it. So out of this sort of uh, battle of who's going to, you know, sort of uh, take the first step of trying to show a bit of rapprochement to the other side, it seems the coalition has taken that first minor, smaller step uh, but so far, the opposition have not reacted in kind. Thank you. And on a side note, is Merits from Daniel Pipe, is Merits able to sabotage Israel-UAE relations? Um, I don't think so. Uh, with the environment, you're talking about the environmental issue uh, with the pipeline. Um, I doubt it. Uh, I think everyone understands that this is too important. And, you know, at the end of the day, Merits is an ideologically left-wing party, um, so it should be supportive of the Abraham Accords and making peace in the region. Uh, certainly it has its uh, uh, environmental uh, issues, and one of their members is the environment uh, minister. Uh, you know, they, they have their demands, but again, I'm sure on this issue, they'll find a way. I, I believe that there'll be a compromise here. Uh, I don't believe that this will be I don't believe that they'll take the steps to, to sabotage relations between the UAE. That's, that's my particular view. I, yeah. Thank you. And going back to our previous question, uh, can MKs be recalled if people are not happy with how they are voting? And what is the probability of Likud removing Netanyahu from heading it? No, MK, the first part of the question, I would say, uh, no, MKs cannot be uh, recalled. Uh, they can't be even fired within their party, uh, as we've seen. If so, Yamina would have fired uh, Shikli, Yisrael Beitena would have uh, fired uh, Elia Vidar. In fact, that we saw this week that Elia Vidar, to uh, ensure his vote for the budget, was actually promoted to a minister. And I think he's even going to be uh, uh, relieved of his position in the Knesset under the Norwegian law. That hasn't been done yet, but that was something which they needed to sort of uh, firm up. They haven't been able to do that with Emichai Shikli, uh, which shows how little power once an MK is voted in. Uh, it's, it has to be an ethical thing or the person themselves have to resign. But there's no real way of recording. As far as uh, uh, Netanyahu, there's no primaries at the moment. There's no primaries on the horizon. What we do see is a great drive by some of the major players in the liquid, Netanyahu on one side, Barkat on the other, uh, as, the, as the, let's say, the largest challenger, unofficial challenger at this point, trying to sign up as many uh, new recruits to the Likud to ensure that they can vote in the next elections. But I believe that the Likud bylaws say that you need, I think it's a year, a year and a half until you can vote in, uh, in, in party elections. Um, so it all depends exactly when Netanyahu feels safe enough to have elections. I think, again, uh, I started by saying, listen, and again, I think once the budget is passed, if the budget is passed, but if the budget is passed, I think that really changes the calculations. That means that this opposition will be out of power for very possibly two years. That changes uh, really the perception within the Likud. That means Likud, who have not been out of power for quite a while and are not used to being out of power, 
then have to think, do we want to remain out of power? Do we, uh, is, there, is there four members who now want to defect into the government? The ultra-Orthodox parties will st uh, certainly start really knocking at their door. They, they've already been knocking at the door, but now they're going to try and push the door down, whether they'll join the government. And certainly at this point, uh, there are those who do not want them to join the government until at least after the budget. But after the budget, there's a possibility we may see, as I said, a lot of movement. So if that passes, then we'll see a lot of pressure uh, to try and move up primaries because it will certainly weaken uh, former Prime Minister Netanyahu's position. Right, and our last question of the day here, uh, hot topic last week was Ben and Jerry's BDS. Uh, has that had any effect on Israel's economy and how is the Israeli government dealing with this? I mean, uh, firstly, uh, no, because the current contract only runs out at the end of 2022. So there's been no effect. There has been effects from what we've seen on the stock exchange of Ben and Jerry's, uh, especially in the US. Uh, in Israel, first of all, it should be stated that BDS as a movement up until this point has had next to zero effect on Israel's economy. Israel's economy grows every single year uh, through a variety of reasons. BDS has only had really symbolic victories. Uh, perhaps the change of perception uh, about Israel has, has occurred over the last few years. But as far as hard economic facts, no, BDS has had no real success there. And on Ben and Jerry's, it's certainly, you know, an, an, uh, an ice cream is not going to bring down Israel's economy. And we're certainly not going to see an effect until 2022. And even then, it will barely be a blip on, on Israel's economy. Uh, what we are seeing, what is interesting to look out for, is exactly which of the state legislatures in the US will enact some of these anti-boycott laws to see whether they will really put pressure. There is pressure on Unilever, the parent body of Ben and, ben and Joe's. So we'll see exactly what happens with that. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. We've come to the close of our webinar and podcast. Ashley, thank you again for taking time to speak with us this week. Uh, for our viewers and listeners, please join us Friday for the continuation of our new series featuring MEF project directors and specialists in their respective fields. Thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a great day.